0: And welcome back, or welcome to the On Coaching podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, fellow coach, co-host John Marcus. John, what is going on, my man? You know, we got to give the people, give the people what they want. Man, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to record an actual theme <laughs> song with that. Um, at some point, that's uh, that's the slogan that's we need we need a professional theme song. So if you're listening, you can do that. If you have those you know. skills,
1: reach out because we are inept in that department. <laughs> that, that is right. <laughs> that
0: is not what we're about. But you know what we are about. What are we about, steven We are about helping coaches get better at the thing they love, which is coaching. Thank you and I love,
1: man that is the yes. most rewarding one of the most rewarding things on the planet seeing
0: someone progress do something they never could do expanding their horizons it's addicting yes coaching is is a difference maker and that is why we started the running scholar program which is your one-stop shop for everything coaching which includes courses it includes a monthly discussion mastermind with John and I leading the way. But most importantly, it includes a community of 300 plus other coaches and a special clubhouse for you to chat, get together, whatever have you. And as I said, monthly Zoom discussions where we get together and just shoot the shit on on all of your coaching problems and needs and solving of problems. Here's why I love it. Because you get
1: your questions answered by other people, peers in the field who are struggling and dealing with the same, very similar um, adversities that you are in real time. I wish we had this when we started coaching because I felt like an island sometimes all alone by myself. You know, you don't really want to ask the people you're competing against for their input because you're too insecure, unsure, because you're trying to, you know, have your athletes or your team beat them. But here you get... Coaches from the high school ranks, from international coaches, uh, club-level coaches, uh, pre- high-performance-level coaches, all coming in and just you know sharing ideas, solving problems together, and providing solutions that you may or may not have thought of. It is the coolest thing ever.
0: Yes. Yeah, so sign up. Get on board. Don't miss out. We are constantly innovating, updating. All of that good stuff. So And learning new things make...
1: like the high school forum or the high school channel is popping off. For less than a dollar a day, come on. It's, you know, no brainer.
0: That's true. And, you know, before we started this podcast, I just posted a sample of uh, Bob Schul's training from when he won the Olympic gold medal in the 5K. Oh, that's and good then, stuff. Yes. You know, broke some of it down. Just throwing it in the chat, that's man. Good just stuff a lovely lovely uh morning read so hop on board if you haven't yet check it out now today today we are going to nerd out on the art and science of workout design Hmm. oh i'm i'm ready let's go stephen all right. This is, you know, this is one of my favorite topics. A lot of times we talk about things that are away from workouts and all that stuff, because we to- we tend to emphasize the workouts a lot, not the other stuff. But today we get to nerd out on the thing that I think often draws distance coaches to coaching is, man, the workout design is, is just phenomenal. You have like, I think it's one of the most creative things that I, I do, which is just sitting down, pen to paper, figuring out, mapping out, you know, what workouts to do, how they're all going to forget or how they're all going to fit together, how they're going to progress. And hopefully today we're going to give you some clarity on the process behind that and how manipulating different workouts uh, impacts things.
1: Oh, yeah. it's It's a... Never ending puzzle. And it's fun because every athlete is an NM1 and has a different response to a workout. You can never really say, okay, this workout is a blanket workout that works for everyone. I mean, you can do that, but it's kind of sloppy and won't be as highly effective as learning the craft and skills behind how to actually design workouts, both for specific responses and also long-term general adaptation
0: yes exactly so you know here here's what i'll say we'll start maybe here i think that we have when it comes to workout design we have to take both a philosophical view of knowing what we're trying to do and how it fits together and then also the we'll call it the scientific physiological view too of understanding how manipulating different characteristics impact the workout? now the the philosophy is what I would call is your like zoomed out thirty thousand foot view, and it could include things like, well, you know, we've got to do, you know, we've got to prepare with general stuff before we get specific. Or we've got to have an aerobic base before or a foundation before we get to the details. All of that stuff is your like 30,000 foot philosophy for workout design. And then you have like the zoomed in a little bit science, physiology and psychology. And you're looking at, oh, man, these are the, the details. And as I manipulate these details, whether it's the interval length, the rest, the recovery, the jog or standing sets or just straight through all of these different variables we have like then shift the adaptation. And I think this is what's so cool about workout design is in the general world, we hear things like, Oh, you need to do high intensity interval training or, you know, sprint interval training, whatever the latest acronym is. And whenever I see that, I'm like, holy crap, guys, you just missed everything. Because, yeah, you can say, hey, we're going to do high intensity interval training. I'm going to do 400s really hard. But guess what? If you modify the speed a little bit, you modify the recovery a little bit, you modify whether it's uphill, on a track, whatever have you, you've just changed the adaptation completely. So all of these things that you've thrown into this bucket of high intensity interval training, you know, some might help your endurance, some might help your, you know, lactic capacity, your acidosis tolerance, some might help your pure speed, like and all, all throughout that. So our job as coaches is to kind of break apart that and understand the variables we're manipulating and how that impacts the adaptation.
1: Yeah, I love that, Steve. I think my initial stance or position is to look to nature, right? And I think what we're seeing now, especially in the modern era, is binary thinking and rhetoric is very seductive because it's very simple. There's an either-or situation, right? But when you look to nature and look to the reality, things are shades of gray. They exist on a spectrum, right? When does winter end? When does it start? right if you say oh it's the equinoxes or the solstices that's my you know starting point i'll tell you what man it gets cold and snowy in november before the you know the winter solstice so that's technically fall but it's cold and snowy right or it can get you know flowers can bloom and things can spring up before the spring equinox so when and where do we have definitive stop start points we don't right we have, in general, a spectrum. So we have to understand the entirety of the spectrum, the holistic you know, reality and truth of the spectrum, which means you can't say this workout is designed for this energy system or this energy system. The I, the reality is it all bleeds together, right? And so when you look to nature, you can step back from this binary discord of like, oh, you got to do hit training, or you got to do this training, or you got to do that training. And that's the one specific thing it, you know, um, stimulates. And it's like, that's very, that catches, um, makes nice headlines and, you know, catches eyeballs, but it's, it's not the reality of what's going on. So we have to remember, we reduce the whole to understand the nuance of that specific area, but we also must concurrently at the same time, remember it's one piece in a whole puzzle. And when we forget that, I think that's when workout designs and arguments on social media about workouts design start to escalate unnecessarily.
0: Yes, I, I, I think you're spot on there. I think you're spot on, is that it, it just can spiral when we don't have that kind of um, that, uh, putting it into the context of the bigger picture or the context of how things work. And so when you think about workouts and workout design, like the
1: hard part is you can reduce it and think of a workout in isolation, But you also must have, like as Steve says, the broader picture and the holistic picture of how it fits in, not just into the micro and the meso, but also the macro, right? And so when we look to nature, I often think about okay, in general, when I think about a workout design, whether it's on the day or even within the week, what's the natural progression? Well, one, there's the setup. How are you setting up the athlete for that workout? Either by warming up, or the prior day, what you do, what you did or didn't do from a stress and activity and um, rest standpoint. Then, too, the next thing is the actual activity, and that's messy. So, you know, I think of like the warm up or the setup as mise en place, set the table, right? This is this French cooking concept where it's like you want all the carrots chopped up. All the pots and pans clean, everything ready to go. So when the chef comes in, they can make the kitchen real messy to actually make the meal, and they don't have to stop and chop the carrots. They don't have to stop and you know clean the um, the knife, right? It's just one seamless thing. And but you have this order, and then it becomes chaos, right? And that's the chaos of activity. And then what happens afterwards? You have this cleanup. Well, that's a cool down, right? You're cleaning up. It's a cleanup period. The day after, the two days after. Depending on the severity of that workout for that organism or the athlete, you have a cleanup period. And that's actually where the adaptation and the improvement happens is in the cleanup and how well you clean up, right, with recovery protocols and sleep, nutrition, hydration, all those things depends on how effective the stimulus of that chaos, that activity, that breakdown is.
0: Yeah, I like that framing. I mean, I, I, I do um, because it, it gives you, again, you're going from prepare, stimulus to clean up or recover, right. adapt, grow.
1: And that's the thing we try to do is here on this podcast and also as coaches is we have to think highly complex because it's complex. It, do not shy away from the realities. Workout design and workout progression and working out and adaptation is a complex phenomenon. But we have to speak simply, like whether it's on this podcast or to the athletes, because the athletes don't care about all these different hormonal releases and time horizons and all. They just want to get better and faster so they can be more good. <laughs>
0: Yes, but we need to wrestle with it. So let's, it's, it's true. Let's, let's, uh, no, let's talk about this. So um, I'll give you my kind of model for this workout design. I break it down as okay, what does a coach need to know?
1: Yeah, let's go general. We'll just do it like training, go general, and then we'll actually touch on specific types of workouts.
0: Yeah. So, so, to me, as I'm looking at general, I break it down into okay, what when we're thinking about workout design, what do I need to know? And I, I kind of classify into these four things. I'm sure there's more that we could, but this kind of keeps me grounded. Number one, adaptation. What adaptation are we looking for, right? What are we trying to do, essentially, with this workout? No-brainer, makes sense. Two, stimulus. How much and what Kind of stimulus needs to be applied to that individual to get that adaptation, right? If we know what we're looking for, we got to know how we can apply it, what it takes to apply. Three, look at recovery, or we could call it growth. What kind of recovery does the the athlete need off of the workout to be able to absorb that adaptation? right? And then four, timing. What period? How often? You know, when? All of that stuff comes together and tells you, okay, this is a workout I should do more often during this period for this athlete. And notice during, uh, those are my four, but notice during those four, I said for the individual athlete. Because all of this is, yes, we have general rules of thumb. Yes, we have heuristics. But as we harp about all the time on this podcast, the individual nature of this, of how an athlete will adapt, of what kind of stimulus. You know, one of the last podcasts we talked about, um, or actually one of the last uh, scholar program group discussions, John talked about hyper-responsiveness to strength training after workout versus not so much. Mm-hmm. Some people feel great, get a boost. Other people, like myself... Hypo. It just, yes, hypo-responsive. Yes, it just pushes us down. Same stimulus, different response, different adaptation, different recovery horizon. Why? Because of the individual nature. So keeping that individual nature um front and center is incredibly important.
1: Yeah, and this is where I think, you know, we got to remember things aren't always straightforward and that's the difficult part that makes you scratch your head, right? A hamburger does not have ham in it even though it's in the name. <laughs> it has beef, right? You go, "Huh? What?" Well, again, we have these these things that we talk about where we say, "Okay, the workout, the workout, the workout." But remember the workout can only be as good as the readiness of the athlete going into the workout and then the commitment to recovery of the athlete after the workout. And so we as coaches spend all this time wrestling with and saying, okay, we got this process of adaptation stimulus. But I think to me in your list, Steve, the most important, the the kind of like um, the force multipliers here, are the last two, the timing and the growth recovery horizons. And that's where education on the athlete side is really critical. And But first it starts here with the coach, right? Because the type of recovery desirable after a highly neurologically stimulating workout with low volume but high intensity is much different than, say, the type of recovery demanded for an individual after a highly demanding extensive workout with a lot of volume of work but not so much high intensity right and so from that we have to create different heuristics for ourselves for the athlete population we work with and develop say archetypes as a starting point and i cannot stress this enough it's the starting point not the end point too many times it becomes the starting point becomes the end point it gives you a general map like the general adaptation syndrome but then you have to be hyper observant and take lots of notes and get a lot of nuance and feeling for the actual response of an athlete to that work. I was actually ran to Jerry Schumacher the other day and we were walking and talking together and we talked exactly about this. And we talked about different athletes he's worked with throughout his career. And, you know, we actually touched on this topic of super shoes and he was like, yeah, I've seen it some." Athletes I work with, super shoes, they're high responders. They get a hyper response. It's like, this athlete would not be at this level without super shoes. Other people, they were good before it, not so much. And so, because of that, I've had to train people differently. And he's like, every year I have to stop and just go, huh? And recalibrate with what I'm doing and how I'm training individuals within my group philosophy. And that was a, you know, I picked his brain about it, but it's like he knows where he's trying to, where he's trying to get is maximize the stimulus to drive the adaptation he wants. But some athletes can handle 12 miles of volume and respond really well. Versus other athletes, their threshold and ceiling is only at seven of that type of stimulus. And that's where he's like, yeah, it takes about two years for me to figure out an athlete when I first starts coaching them, when they're brand new. I go, two years. I go yeah, it's
0: about right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I'm glad I'm glad you had that conversation because and it's interesting hearing it from someone like that on the super shoots. but it is it's it's so true. Like it takes time. And you know, Trent Stellingworth put this uh, picture up on Twitter a couple weeks ago. Um, from a study that I love citing, which is Villard et al. 2009, Systematic an- Analysis of Adaptations in Aerobic Capacity and some maximal Energy Metabolism. And this graphic is great because they looked at, you know, the the deepest of deepest levels, like enzyme activity and all that stuff, and I've talked about it, and you see... After the athletes do the exact same training, it was like 70% of VO2 max, like enzymatic activity in in, um, in in citrate synthase or complex one, which is essentially mitochondria kind of enzyme activity. It ranged from the exact same training, in one case, ranged from decreasing to 25% below the initial starting point all the way up to 250% higher than the initial starting point. So we've got this this citrate synthesis, these mitochondria, you know, enzymes that you know. You look at any of the textbooks, you look at my book, Science of Running. You'll go to any course, and they're like, "Oh yes, we did this aerobic training, and then we get a boost in these mitochondria and these enzymes." And generally, that's true. But again, if you're looking at the study all training at the same percent of VO2 max, which means same kind of relative effort and it was aerobic effort, you've got a range from getting significantly worse to holy crap, this is the best training stimulus ever. <laughs> and and I love like pointing that out because I think again, We talk about workout design and you're like, well, you know, this is simple. You know, you do some uh, tempo runs to improve this on lactate and, you know, this long intervals to improve this on that. And in general, yes, those are general general themes or ideas that get us started. But yes, but the key is as uh, as the coach As you just heard with John's, you know, uh, story about Jerry Schumacher is like, you have to take the time to understand how they respond to different workouts, and this is this is, you know, when we talk about workout design, and we we'll go into the details here, but this is the most important point, is that. You're starting with essentially a prediction on, like, oh, yes, when I do tempo runs or a 20 minute tempo run, it should lead to X, Y, and Z. You're making that prediction, but you need to watch and learn how your athletes adapt and grow and absorb that training to understand if they follow the kind of average line or if they follow the you know, super high responder line, or maybe even the oh shit, this doesn't work at all line and And figuring that out for each kind of bucket stimulus is so, so very important. And I'll give you another example. you know, um, back in the day with co- coaching college kids, I had an athlete who was so so responsive to acidosis training. That he could, we could literally do two sessions of acidosis training and he'd be near maxed out on that capacity. And if we stayed there for too long, like eventually he'd just kind of fall apart, you know? Other people would need like 10, 12, 14, 15 sessions of just get acidosis get their their muscles burning like hell before they were like adapted to it and, and and that's in training for similar middle distance events but those are the kinds of nuance you have to understand when you're working with athletes and individuals it's not all the kind of straightforward stuff figure out how they respond
1: yeah and that's the key right there it's like it's a matrix right you have High responders and low responders on one axis, and then also quick response and slow response on another axis. In general, certain things that require morphological changes, like capillary density, um, you know, left ventricle hypertrophy, things that we tend to call more aerobic-based training, tend to have a slow response rate because you're reconstructing the actual physical architecture of the body. However, some people do respond really quickly to a low amount of stimulus or some people respond really slowly to a high amount of stimulus and vice versa right it it's figuring out where they fall on that matrix and you know another thing in the conversation I was having with Jerry that reminded me as you were talking Steve is talking even about altitude training right he says you know he's like the science is great and i love science because science helps you essentially figure out if what you think is wrong. And how everyone just thinks, oh, go up to altitude and magically get better. And he's like, that's not how it happens. What happens is, yeah, your body produces more red blood cells, potentially. But some people, as he knows, respond a lot better and respond a lot and respond a lot differently or a lot worse. But then the question is that he raises is if your body then produces 10% more red blood cells, then the thing is, can your body actually use them to their advantage? And so you got the the initial stimulus you saw or adaptation of more red higher EPO you know more red blood cell count improved hematocrit, but can it actually use that improved hematocrit? And sometimes the answer is no. Like Alan Webb's a really good example. This guy naturally had a hematocrit above fifty, like in the mid fifties, just walking around planet Earth at sea level. <laughs> Going up to altitude provides so much stress because you couldn't recover quite as quickly. And so, and he would come back down and be like, well, I just spent all this time up there. And I actually got worse because I didn't improve my red blood cell count that much. I'm not able to use that much more. And I actually had to, you know, do this harder, more uh, voluminous work that created more stress on me that I was unable to bounce back from. And so it wasn't something he used that much successfully in his career with, right? Because he didn't need to. Versus someone like a Shalane Flanagan, who is a altitude native, born at altitude, goes up to altitude for stents, gets a big old boost, right? And knows how to use it because we know if you're an altitude native, there is a propensity for you to have a little bit higher and more thorough and deeper response to that. And so we want with workout design is the illusion of precision. That's what we want. And there's this illusion of precision. These reps... These miles, these splits will create this, you know, um, stimulus that result in this adaptation and this improvement. But the reality is we have to be very humble. And that's why science is really important is being scientifically minded means you are okay with being wrong and understanding and admitting you're wrong. Because science is the reality of evidence that is the truth of what is actually happening. And you got to tell the athletes, like, I might be wrong here. But the idea with the workout design is think of it with less razor precision. Like I used to think of it when I was a younger coach and had a more binary type mindset. And It's more just, are you in the ballpark? That's the question. Are you in the zip code? And we know that some people might be a little bit more around home base and some people might be out way out in left field, but as long as you're in the ballpark or the zip code, you are kind of getting enough. And that's where, you know, I like to take like essentially like the training soup mentality with workout designs. Like if you include enough things in general, you'll then start to see which direction and uh, degree of response people have towards different stimuli. And then from there, you can start to tailor that in general. And that's what the general period of training really is about. And why people will like, say, oh, we only do long distance running in general strength. No speed, no late lifting, no hills, no nothing. No, the idea is you emphasize a certain element, but you should say sprinkle in all elements so you can kind of get an idea about how someone feels after a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And then you can shift your emphasis as you move from the general to like the foundation or developmental period to the specific period. Cl- towards the thing that the athlete needs more of a response towards or has a higher quicker response rate towards
0: Yeah no you're spot on I mean it's it's figuring out that that nuance you know and it is a little bit of a it's like a a, a mini science experiment where you're testing trying and seeing hey does this have the response so I think what we have on this kind of zoomed out picture is is we have this. Is yes, you need to know like the science and the physiology and all that stuff. But remember that that is general ideas. Starting those
1: starting points.
0: Those give you the starting point on like, well, on average or normally. And that's what all the books are written on, myself included. Mm -hmm. Like I included a section on individualization, but you can't. You start in the middle. (laughs) We start with what works most of the time. You know, most of the time, if we do it a 20, 30 minute tempo threshold session, we're going to get this adaptation. Okay, not all the time, most of the time, right? So you start there. That's your starting point. That's your heuristic. And then what we have to do is we have to understand the individual adaptation. We have to understand and look at how they respond to different things. What are we looking for there? Are they that hyper responder in terms of they get a huge boost? Are they a hypo responder in terms of they don't get any boost or get worse. Are they the quick responder or are they the slow responder? Mean Meaning they don't need much of it and they can get it up really high, close to their max, or they need a long time and lots of this work to get better. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've got, that's kind of our framework that that we just went through that we're, we're kind of, um, you know, working off and outlining. Now I think, John, let's turn to, let's get into some of the details. How do we make the decisions on how to design, manipulate, you know, essentially create these many science experiments within our workout design? The key for me is
1: limitations is asking what is limiting this athlete from the next level of performance right and that's really hard when they're brand new but when they're brand new it's also really easy because you can literally do anything with a newbie and they'll get better like that's the beauty of linear periodization and linear adaptation that essentially the novice enjoys is any stimulus will result in a positive adaptation provided the recovery is adequate and a rising tide lifts all boat you can do Bench presses all day and your VO2 max will go up if you're completely brand new to athletic training, which a lot of high school freshmen, you know, middle school athletes, and even some athletes who are seniors or masters who have taken a long, you know, break from regular physical activity uh, are privy to. But when we then think about the history of an athlete and a competitive athlete, that's where you do need to look back at their training at their uh, performance, you know, at their growth in general and see where they are now, where they've come from and where they could go if those limitations are alleviated to a certain degree. And then you have to make a prioritization list of the biggest limitant right now. What is the biggest limitant to their perform or elevating their performance right now? Is it mechanical? Is it physiological to a certain degree? Is it psychological? Is it a cofactor of all these? Is it multifactorial? And from there, that's where then I start to, we go in this direction. If it's really mechanical, then we start to do a lot of work that emphasizes better mechanical structure, whether it's strength training, hill running, sprints, plyometrics, um, you know, that type of body awareness. If it's physiological, well, then we do training that sets up to maximize that physiological, um, response for the athlete. If it's aerobic or if it's, you know, anaerobic, aerobic in nature, glycolytic in nature, we start to factor that in and so on and so forth. That is to me, I think that is the, the needs analysis you have to do to make a good decision about, all right, what are we going to do now? Um, and direction we're going to take this athlete.
0: Yeah. I, I call it the kink in the pipe, yep. you know, <laughs> Like where's the kink in the pipe, and just like you would look if you had an actual kink in the pipe, I look above and below it, right? You know, on either side of the direction. Well, like where? What's what is potentially uh, uh, causing it, and that that needs analysis. Gives you an, an idea of okay, where do I need to go? What direction? What stimulus to apply? What adaptations am I after? And the other thing, again, since we talked a lot about individualization, it's all a hypothesis, you know? This is why we have training periods. You might say, hey, for the next four weeks or six-week block or whatever it is, I think that their aerobic adaptation or their general aerobic fitness is what's, you know, holding them back here. Well, you do the work you see if it improves and you see if that was the kink in the pipe, right? So, you know, and, and it's funny, I was talking to um, um a, a successful master's athlete who set some records and stuff and they were struggling coming out back off, off of COVID and they're like, I don't know what it is. Like my runs feel different, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you know, you got to figure it out, which means all I would do is like, you know, go down the track, run something short and fast, some 200s, No, another day, do something kind of long and steady, tempo run, whatever, marathon pace, whatever you want to call it, and then another day, some medium intervals in between. And once you do that, that'll give you a good idea on, on maybe where your kink in the pipe is right now for this, right? Does your speeds feel the same? Great. That's not the problem, you know? Does your long stuff still feel pretty aerobic and easy and breathing is about the same? Great. That's not the problem. Then maybe this middle thing is the problem, which then tells you what is weak, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing. When we're looking at workout design is, yes, we're looking at, you know, we're trying to get better at things, but the workouts also give you clues on how the kink in the pipe is changing, right? Right based on how they're doing and their various sets or kinds of workouts. And this is also why, um, why John, I'm not a big fan of just doing one style of training for a very long time. I mean, I love and all that stuff, but I'm not a fan of even during the base period for most people, unless it's like new high school kids, to just go like miles, 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 miles. Because that tells me nothing in terms of how the global picture is changing. I need to include some short sprints, and maybe they're just up a hill. doesn't matter. But I need to include something that gives me an idea on other parts of the spectrum so that I know how globally they're changing and how potentially their kind of kink in their pipes are changing as well. Yeah,
1: that's what I love about Bowerman and the Oregon system is the consistency of the quote-unquote time, t- time trial or test efforts, right? And the test efforts were designed to see was the athlete progressing in the direction as anticipated. And Vin Linna does this as well, too, with his uh, period- periodation scheme. Every two weeks, there's a, either a race or a time trial. And so to speak, what those are those are check-in points, right? Just to see are we generally progressing in the direction we want? And we know from how typically response time horizon work to block stimuli is in general that you'll see kind of this exponential rate of increase starting around week three. And then it starts to plateau after and around week six where your rate of return isn't worth the work and fatigue that you're putting in, right? And that's when you typically want to change over. Some people that might be, 30 days, some people that might be, you know, a little bit longer it might be 60 days, or so on and so forth, right. But the key is, is coach, four different types of stimuli or adaptation, you're trying to advance, that you have some regular check in, whether it's a workout, or a time trial, or what have you, or an observation period, where you're seeing if those, if that progress is being made. So one of the things I use when I was in college, for like, say, my distance athletes was it was the same workout six by a mile at a threshold effort uh with you know 60 seconds or if they were a little bit younger 90 seconds recovery you know and i was talking to my um, strength my uh, kettlebell coach the other day you know are we doing kettlebell swings and he was like man this is the best your swings ever looked this is amazing it's awesome you know but it's like it was still hard (laughs) it was just as hard as day one (laughs) and i go you know what the reality is As I know this, it never gets easier. It only gets better. (laughs) And this is why I love why you start off in, you know, Canova style training. You start off with studying the effort because the effort is the constant. That level of effort is never going to change. It's always going to have that degree of severity or difficulty, but it gets better because you look at the watch and the time gets faster and that is rewarding. And so the dopamine release you get from a faster time on the stopwatch Kind of oversee or overrides the difficulty of effort that you're putting in. So when we understand that, you're applying the same effort. And if it is, you know, relative to that individual better, whether it's a faster average global time for the mile reps or same time, short recovery, or both, then you know you're going in the right direction. And so like with my 10K athletes, I knew like if we didn't do that workout every two weeks and that was just a staple, you know, we would kind of be out there flying blind, so to speak. Right. But about every two weeks, you can expect to see a little bit of an advancement. And ideally, I had about a time horizons of we'd have this workout every two weeks for about, you know, six to eight weeks. And then we do it their 10K race, right? And so that way we kind of had an idea about how to set them up for the 10K based off of what the progression of that workout was or wasn't. And you give them adequate, um, you know, kind of pace prescriptions and directions and uh, racing um, game plan because, hey, we have this feedback of this kind of six by a mile with short rest, which is essentially a quote-unquote 10K stimulator or simulator, and I mean, Bowerman and Dillinger had the same thing, right? Priest thirty forty drill, that's so famous. I mean, Bowerman, I mean, and Dillinger did that a lot with a lot of different athletes. You know, they had these simulator runs, and based off those simulators, they could get an idea of how they're advancing or not.
0: Yeah, I, exactly. I I, I think. In your program, you've got to have an idea or something that is repeated in general or same style that gives you an idea of the direction there.
1: Some type of anchor, right? It's kind of why yes. like in football, basketball, soccer, and team sports, you scrimmage. Scrimmage is an anchor for game time competition, right? So this is our concept of a scrimmage.
0: <laughs> it, 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 exactly. It's something that anchors and, and gives you that information back. And the other thing that I would say is often in these, we judge it based on, oh, did they run faster in the workout? That only tells you a little bit, right? There's all these different variables that we can shift our anchor a little bit and tell us good information, right? If we got if we got if we're running the same, let's say six by mile faster, okay. That gives us an idea on, like, how we're handling both mechanically and physiologically the intensity of the work, right? The rhythm of the speed, all that good stuff. Um, If we start recovering faster and we no longer need 90 seconds for 60, and now we only need 60 seconds, that gives us an idea on how well, like, aerobically we're coming back down and can get, like, back back in it, you know? So, it's like that gives us something else. If instead of 6 by mile we said, you know what, John, we're going to do, um we're going to change them to 1800 or 2k repeats or whatever. That extension gives us some more information, right? And often you don't see this in 6 by mile, but you see this in in track intervals where instead of 400 meter repeats we do 500s or something like that, right? That gives us information on ability of lasting our extensive endurance at a specific speed, right? So all of these things, same thing if we're looking at maybe initially we we split things into sets and know where we have longer rest. Let's say instead of six by mile, we do two sets of three by mile with three minutes in between sets. If we no longer need the, the set sets and sh- can just go straight through, that tells us a little bit more on how we can handle the density of work right? without needing this, this kind of clearing space to get on, get back into it, maybe both from a physical or psychological standpoint. So my point in kind of outlining all of these things is it's not just, oh, let's see if we run these faster. And I didn't even talk about mechanics, but let's see how we're handling these. And if we're handling them, these kind of staple workouts in a better way, in a direction, then that tells you. And it's pretty simple. You watch the athlete, right? You see where their breaking points are. As a coach, I can always tell like, hey, do they need more or less recovery based on their body language, based on if they're talking in between, right? All of those things give us information, okay? So- taking that information, understanding where it's coming from, and then understanding, hey, does this tell me aerobically they're better, intensity-wise they're better, handling the fatigue byproducts are better, psychologically, whatever. And that gives you some information, which then you can take back, plug in, and look at in terms of, well... I think we've had this adaptation and our, our kink in the pipe has now shifted over to X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm.
1: I think that's important to call out is the what versus the how we often talk about the, what, what's the workouts, what's the miles, what, 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 what's really easy to track. It's really superficial, really elementary. It's numerical. It's really straightforward, but you know, all of all the times I'm and the reason Steve and I read so much of these biographies of runners or autobiographies or, you know, training um, um, little, you know, snippets of runners is, yeah, anyone can look at what they're doing. But the question is how? What's the body composure, the mental composure? How How are they moving? And that's where the coach's eye can never be replicated or outsourced. Like, why it's so important for the coach for us to have a pulse on how they're handling the load. And that how they're handling the load, yeah, the weight might have moved in the gym, or the split might have been hit on the stopwatch. That's great. But if they're doing it in a way that's potentially forceful, non-sustainable, that, that's awesome that they made that number happen. But in a race, it's a highly stressful environment. And that's what we're trying to do is make sure we're giving them the tools to cope with the highly stressful realities of race day so that they can then perform to their highest capacity and potential based off of what you did in training to prepare them for. And that's a very subtle thing that often gets lost, you know, uh, in translation when we look at, oh, this person ran this workout, or, look at Strava, or look at this, or look at all this informa- information, information, data input. We look at the what, but we don't necessarily look at the path of the how.
0: Yep exactly i think i think that path and that how is is such an important thing so that that's why you know as as i sit here john and you know reflect on our conversation it's like what the really good coaches like bowerman or you know john mcdonald would do this right is they have a system in place where it's almost like checks and balances right it's i'm applying this stimulus to get this adaptation with this workout but i need to check that because there's individual nature of this and if i don't get that then i need to adjust my program right and maybe this individual workout or maybe they they are hyper or hypo responsive to you know x y and z and they ne- they have that check you know in high school um as another example, one of our aerobic check was was we had this five-mile hilly course that we would do. The really advanced runners would do 10 miles. The um, not-advanced as runners would do five miles on this hilly course. You'd get a break after five miles, a short break to get some water and go back out at it. And my coach's goal was was pretty simple. It was like, this is our aerobic check. If you can run 10 miles for our high level guys and we can do it at six minute pace or better and not be dying, then I know aerobically you guys are still in a good point, you know? And we do that, you know, maybe five, four or five times a, a, a year or whatever. And he would say, you know, during our heavy track training, we'd go out there and do this 10 miler and you'd be like, why are we doing this 10 miler? for, uh, well, we're training for a mile and you'd be like, pretty simple. I want to know if your aerobic ability has eroded or if you're still fine and we can still keep pressing on, on this like intense interval stuff. And that lessons always stuck with me because it's like, you know, yours doesn't need to do 10 miles at six minute pace or whatever have you. And it doesn't. And the point we're saying is it doesn't need to be a maximum workout, but if we have checkpoints along the way that look at our speed, right, our acidosis tolerance, our aerobic endurance, our threshold, or whatever, like that's all you're doing. You know the the Britsons get a lot of hype for like measuring lactate on everything. All they're doing is a very is a more specific measure of this, which is checking in, seeing hey. How are we aerobically on this? Hey, how are we lactate wise in terms of like this acidosis tolerance because lactate corresponds with high I- hydrogen ions? How are we doing on these intense interval workouts? Yeah, is it moving in the direction we expect or is it not? And you don't need fancy lactate you know, measurement to do that. You can get pretty good at it by watching responses, seeing mm-hmm. how people handle it. And seeing how people handle the various manipulators of, of workouts in terms of speed, intensity, density, recoverability, rep length, all that stuff.
1: Yeah, the measure is important too, because I mean, you can measure things in miles or you can measure it in like time or you can measure it in steps, how many steps you're taking, right? And when you think about, say, mileage in general and like workouts in general, like, you know, it seems to be in general in the ballpark about five to 10 hours of running in a week period tends to be adequate to advance a runner of sorts, right? Now, how many miles are they gonna cover in that five to 10 hours of work? Who knows? Some people, you know, who are really good movers and quote unquote, you know, freaks, they might only, they might be able to compete and perform off of three to four hours of training a week of running training. Other people might need 12 to 14 to 16 hours, right? And then the mileage scale skews accordingly, right? But when we know that, when we know the science has shown like, hey, about this amount of work per week or about this amount of practice, hours of practice per week yields, you know, pretty high responsive results to adaptations, then from there, that's where we can start to orient ourselves. And I think, you know, often we um, think in these really concrete time horizons of saying, this athlete needs this many miles and, oh, they're running these many miles. Oh, okay. I mean, but it's different, as we said, individually for everyone, because it's about how much practice or exposure of practice do you need, does that athlete need to facilitate the adaptation. And then, which doesn't compromise the amount of recovery and growth period they need to facilitate that adaptation. And so when I I think, you know, you said about maximum workouts, Steve, that triggered a thought in me, like the longer I coach, the more and more I'm less inclined to do go to the well, see God maximum workouts, leave those for race days. Why? The severity of that type of effort is so intense on an organism, on an athlete that requires a long, you know, kind of preparation or recuperation period before and then a long restoration period after because it doesn't just herp- impact them physiologically. It impacts them hormonally, impacts them structurally, impacts them at such a level because it's the maxima of maxima. And that makes sense in a race, right? You rest up before a race and then you kind of recover after a race. If you did, took that mentality in a, you know uh, in a training week, you couldn't get a lot of training in because you're spending over half the week just resting up. Essentially, for this maximum. <laughs> so, but when we know this from, like, say, um, strength and conditioning world and weightlifters. The best weightlifters tend to do the highest amount of work in, you know, it's that kind of polarized model where it's like a lot at like that high level submax. And that's the thing I think when we say submax, we mean not maximum, but just a step below maximum. People tend to think submax means everything that's not maximum. No, 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 It's right there, just a little bit off full throttle, right? And that's what the Ingebrigtsens are doing is they're saying, all right, we want to go as full throttle as possible without creating too much acidification. And so we'll use lactate as our proxy to understand if at this time for this person, if we're getting the amount of intensity we want, but without the amount of Acidification, we don't want. And so, in general, when I think about training too, I come back more to say lesson planning, um, you know, and teaching, in whether it's in general, globally, macro, in terms of a um, periodization of overall of a training season, or even kind of the meso of a week, or even the micro of a workout. Ten things tend to go in this sequence I found to be successful in my practice is there's an introduction. Then there's an intensification or a focus. Then there's a recuperation and then there's a stabilization. Repeat. So how does this look in an individual workout? Introduction, the general warm-up, quote-unquote activation drills, whether it's, you know, dynamic warm-up drills or say activation intervals that Athletes may run to kind of get them physiologically and neurally primed for the type of work that's going to come. Then you have intensification. Focus on the main body of work that day. Is it neurological in nature? Is it strength-based in nature? Are you running all-out sprints? Are you running hill repeats, short hill repeats, or long hill repeats? Are you doing temporal runs? Or are you doing VO2 or you know 3K, 5K pace intervals? That's the intensification period then you have a a little mini recuperation period right so in a workout it's like all right take a break after this chunk of work you're done you know uh jog walk you know rest between sets rest between reps what have you then you go to stabilization which for me what i like to do is always have a stabilizing element to complement the intensification element so what does that mean if someone's doing um say their main body of work is the intensification is hill repeats uh, of say short length, 30 seconds at 3K pace or effort, I should say. Then they'll after they're done with that block of work, they might jog around, freshen up a little bit for about 10 minutes, and then we'll do like three by a mile at kind of like half marathon effort with 60 seconds recovery as a aerobic stabilization or stabilizing a certain element after the intense work. And then that's it. That's the day. You can also look at that at a week, right? You tend to introduce the day before a workout, a little neural priming with strides, right? Or even a race, pre-race drill. Then you have the intense body of work the next day. That's the workout session. Then you have the recuperation period, which is the day after, and it might be two days after depending on the severity of it. And then usually that second workout of the week, that's a stabilization workout. Not another intense one, but one that's stabilizing. So a little Bit probably longer, less intense, that's stabilizing certain elements and might also revisit different elements from the intense work, but not at quite that level of density and severity as before, just to stabilize it. Boom, put it on repeat. It really is like that simple, but it took a long time to get to that level of simplicity because it can be hyper complex if you tend to let the deluge of headlines And the latest and greatest thing that, or program design someone's trying to sell you on kind of influence you. But if you step back and get clarity, it really is that. And then you can see in that stabilization period, what stabilization means is what Steve and I talked about. Are you doing the same work with less effort, quicker recovery, and or at a higher level of performance? And if that is the, the case, you've stabilized. If you haven't, if you're not able to, if the athlete's not able to do that, they have yet to stabilize. So you might have done this stabilization activity, but they didn't didn't demonstrate the check marks of stability for that stabilization activity. So it actually is an intensification activity. So then you gotta go back into that and test, and then you start back where you are for intensification, which means recuperation immediately after, right? <laughs>
0: I love it. I mean, I th- I think you just outlined like the the thing. Yeah,
1: it is right. the th- I was because I was thinking about this the other day, right? I was running and I was doing a workout, and I was like, and I because I think about a lot of because I study a lot of strength training and talk a lot to a lot of me. I was actually talked to Alan Bishop about it. Uh, you know, our colleague at U of H, performance director for U of H men's basketball, and it's like it's exactly the same for a workout, right? We warm up, they warm up. You do warm up lifts, warm-up drills, the bar, you know, with no weight, blah, blah, blah. Then you do things that are a little bit, you know, that prime you, right? A little priming activity. All right, we do strides. We do repeats. We do dynamic drills. Same thing in the weight room. They do some priming activity, some really quick explosive work or mobility work, whatever, right? Then you do your main body of work. Great. Then you rest. Then you do a little bit more work if the athlete has that ability in them. And then the day's done. You check out. It's the same. I was like, it's the same. (laughs) It's not complicated, but it can be confusing.
0: Yes, I I like that. It's not complicated, but it can be confusing. And so I'm going to summarize what I think you should take away from this podcast, which is the individualization, the testing, Not testing and like, oh, we're going to go test your vertical or whatever have you. The using workouts to understand if your predictions are correct, right? And then setting up your workouts and realizing that you have the freedom to manipulate, test, explore, just like, you know, you just mentioned there in terms of the, well, we warm up. We prepare, we prime, we do the work, we see if there's a little bit more work based on the recovery, then we clear things out, recover, adapt. I think often what happens is we think, oh, the magic is in the workout. What's the key magic workout? Oh, 10 by 400s with a minute rest. Great. And that workout might be appropriate, but you're in charge. You are the creative artist, right? You are the person who's testing and seeing if your predictions are correct or not.
1: And the key is to have some maps, right? The key is to have a hypothesis and a general anticipation about these time horizons and adaptation horizons. One of the best maps out there, I think we've referenced this before, is in the book, The Science of Winning uh, by Young Ulbricht, which has uh, different time horizons for different recovery periods after different intensities of physiological work. So if you're doing a highly acidic workout, there's a general time horizon that he's that they noticed in swim training that you can use to orient yourself in run training. Now, like we talked about with Steve's athlete, it might be a shorter time horizon, might be a longer time horizon, depending on their response profile. But that's a good general point of view, you know, versus aerobic-based type work. It's a good general map. And this is the key, right? We search and search and search for general maps because it's much better to have a compass to say, all right, I need to go north or northwest than to just wing it and say, I'm just going to go this way and see what happens, right? You'll get somewhere, but it might not be the destination you want. And better coaches tend to have better maps, but they also tend to have um, better aptitude towards recalibrating in the moment when the territory doesn't align with the map, which means that when the direction we sought off in training, that the response and actual adaptation the athlete is expressing is not what anticipated, we're okay course correcting, we're okay revising. Need a couple extra recovery days? Great. Actually, you know what? You progressed a little bit faster on this than I thought, hey, we can ramp it up a little bit for right now. And that is why, you know, and Jerry put this really well, he goes, that's why the science scientists will never, you know, ever be the best coaches is because the scientists lack that understanding of that craft. But then he says also people who aren't science educated will never be the best coaches because they also lack the humility, essentially to be able to see if their guess or approximation or hypothesis was wrong and course correct. It's why you need both. It's why the art and science is really a craft when they're blended together. And those craftsmen's and women are the best at their practice because they understand the balance and the need for both to uh, fuel and also drive their ability to do
0: their work. Love it. I think that balance is what it's all about. You know, and honestly, that balance is why I wrote The Science of Running, because I was trying to balance those two things out. So it it's understanding that. Um, all right. Well, once again, I just want to thank listeners for tuning in, giving us your time, your valuable time. And to remind you, if you're interested in upping your coaching game, We've got the solution for you. If you want to learn about this balance, if you want to dive deeper into workout design, guess what? We've got you covered. Running Scholar Program. Have these conversations with John and I and 300 other inquisitive coaches who are trying to figure things out. Join on in. You won't regret it.